calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, welcome back to CFA Institute Take 15 series. Today we're joined by Fraser Howey, Managing Director of CLSA Singapore. And today we're here to talk with him about uh, his perspective and views on China. Uh, thanks for joining us, Fraser. Thank you very much. All right, very good. Um, first off, can you please uh, tell us uh, what your perspective is on uh, investing and analyzing uh, China? I think the, the thing that myself and my co-author Carl have always tried to do with China in our writing and when we've looked at China, is simply get behind the big numbers. China's a huge country. At any measure, it's, over, it's a, a sixth of the world's population. So therefore, so many of the numbers that come out of China seem just to be so incredible, so much bigger than other countries, and somehow uh, beyond the scope of what we're used to. But once you get behind those numbers, you find that China is a much more accessible story. You've got to really get behind the headlines, not take things at face value. Often the structures in China seem to be uh, very similar to what we use in the West and developed markets. But when you dig a bit deeper and get behind that facade, you find that things are very different indeed. Now, as an analyst, you're constantly faced with these sort of challenges. What is it that you guys do to get behind the numbers? Because you know, in China, we hear so much about numbers being manipulated or distorted or not actually as, as they appear to be. Uh, what is the process and approach? Well, I, I think ultimately it's been experience that both of us had spent 20 plus years living or working in China. Right. Um, and so you simply get to understand, you sort of see the headline, and then you see the reality and the implementation of that headline, and they're often two different things. So often an, an example would be that often maybe the news would report that China is going to introduce something. And there's an expectation that this is coming out within days or weeks. But if you go to the Chinese text of what the, you know, the regulator actually said, they may say they're going to study something or, or do something like that. And the Chinese can study for a long time. So it could be years or months before what was rumored to come out actually meets the marketplace. So it's a case of really, it's from experience that that sort of cynicism or that realism comes from. And it's really, therefore, being much more aware of the, 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 the sort of propaganda aspect of a lot of those numbers. Right, right. So uh, let's take a step back for a second. So as uh, you think about the unique trading relationship that China uh, has in the world, particularly with the United States, a lot of authors refer to this as Chimerica. Um, and there's been a lot of talk lately about uh, a problem with the balance of trade or potential problem with the balance of trade. How do you look at the balance of trade issue between the United States and China? And how do you view that as changing possibly over time? It's certainly been a problem, and it's certainly been very lopsided, but it's been lopsided on both sides, that America has been running very large deficits and China's been very, running very large surpluses. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure which one is worse. The Chinese, which would obviously, which at prima facie level would have a sort of an upper hand by running the surpluses, have built up huge reserves, $3 trillion built up in the past decade because of the running these large uh, balance of trade uh, surpluses. And yet that's in currencies that are ultimately weakening and are facing problems. So China's built up a lot of wealth in a depreciating currency, which is probably not a good idea. Ultimately, it will balance out over time. 
I think the biggest worry is that China is not going away. China is now obviously part of the global economic you know, trading framework. You cannot reset the clock. The key thing is to not allow these imbalances lead to protectionism and then actually put up further barriers. Because ultimately it's in China and America's interest to make this economic relationship work. You know, if you make uh, an analogy uh, between you know, China's positioning today and uh, Russia and the a various Asian countries that went through the Asian flu back in the late 90s, a lot of them, uh, in Russia's case, they had a su substantial amount of currency reserves and they were also you know, pegging their currency to the dollar at that point in time. But you know, as the, investor, as the market became more concerned about their ability to, to uh, repay their debts, um, there was ongoing runs on their currency. Um, it, today, with Russia or with uh, China, uh, do, do you see that 3.2 trillion uh, relative to the, their economy today? to be a substantial buffer against any potential uh, crisis or issues that they might face? Oh, without question. They're obviously in a very comfortable position from that perspective. They're clearly a very big global trader. So therefore, having a large amount of foreign reserves makes sense. Uh, I think it also can be misleading because it gives an appearance of wealth, which many people think can be used domestically, but ultimately is only of value internationally. Um, so it, they certainly are, have insulated themselves from those types of scenarios, Asian financial crisis type of things you saw in Thailand or Russia or in many other countries in Asia. Um, but uh, it, it's, it can also be misleading all that wealth as well. Okay. And it's been well known uh, since the late 70s, I think it was 1978, when they implemented the one-child policy. Well, now that's starting to sort of bear fruit as their population it's really ironic for an emerging market country to uh, also have an aging population, uh, but yet th that's what they're faced with. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the demographic situation in China and how that might affect returns and in investing going forward. Sure. I think that's, uh, these are often forgotten because so much of our focus in sort of the investment community is very short term. It's what the Dow is doing this week or what the, the Hang Seng is doing this week or what the trend is year-to-date return. And ultimately, it's these things which will define the next 20 or 30 years for China. China has had certainly a sweet spot of growth for the past 10, certainly past 10 and probably past 20 years. Demographics have been in their favor. Global trade has been in their favor. Fall of the Iron Curtain, of course. Many things have gone in their favor. China is really going to start facing a tipping point. And while it's become much wealthier in the past few decades, it's probably not got wealthy enough. So it's certainly going to get old before it gets rich. And this is ultimately going to slow down growth and, and, and be a burden to China. Now, that doesn't mean that China necessarily goes into recession, that it stops, that it you know, goes back to 1979 or anything like that. But it does mean that the returns in China going forward will not be as good um, as they have been. In your book, Red Capitalism, you talk about the fragility of China's financial system. Uh, I'm curious uh, what your perspective is on where that financial system was in 2008 and where it stands today in 2012. I think the real the turning point of the global financial crisis was that the banks which had been following a, a reform program basically based on sort of Western models and had been implemented pretty well between sort of from 98 to about 2005. Um, the reforms had made some sense. The, the government and the, the, the key reformers had really taken some good initiatives to try and develop the market. It then started to slow, but certainly by 2008 and the collapse of Lehman's, the whole process of bank reform came to an end. And what you had was that the government just turned to the banks and turned on the credit taps as a way just to boost, financial, to boost GDP growth. So that while China was lauded with 
you know, keeping growth high and keeping the global economy running through 2009 and 2010, the Chinese ultimately will pay a heavy price for that because they absolutely flooded their economy with money. They doubled basically the, the lending book of the banks. Their M2 is now twice GDP, and ultimately that's going to play out badly in the long, in the medium to longer term. So they've been able to delay that day of reckoning for a lot of the what would otherwise be non-performing loans, you know, through some of the reforms that they've implemented in their uh, in their system recently. Um, at what point is there a day of reckoning uh, for China for these non-performing loans? Well, that's the thing. I, I don't think there is really a day of reckoning in the way that when we saw Dubai, when they had debt problems, or Greece, or you know, the Italians, or Spanish, or Portuguese, when they're coming to the market to basically refinance in a country in a currency that they don't print. China certainly doesn't face those types of things. But the problem with sort of pushing off the day of addressing these bad loans and actually solving some of their financial problems means that ultimately banks are being forced to roll over loans and effectively therefore give you know, new loans to finance old underperforming loans instead of actually investing in good quality businesses in China. So again, what this becomes is like the demographics, a drag on the longer term growth prospects of China. Your perspective seems to suggest that there's an inherent conflict between China's aspirations for superpower status and to become the world's reserve currency and uh, departures from market-based capitalism. I'm curious what your uh, thoughts are on that. Well, I think that's very true. I, I, I really struggle to see how China becomes an economic superpower or just a superpower in general when they still have so many issues to address domestically. Ultimately, and again, it's not just, they will, they will be a big economy. At some point, their economy will probably be larger than the US economy. But quite frankly, so what? When Japan invaded China in the 1930s, the Japanese economy was half the size of the Chinese economy. So simply having, again, as we spoke at the beginning, big numbers are everywhere in China. Having a big economy is because they've got six of, the, of humanity. The big problem that China faces is that everyone looks at it to become a superpower, but when you've got so many underlying problems, then how can you achieve those aspirations? If you're looking at a superpower being like the US having a model that others want to follow, Ultimately, the Chinese do not have a model that others want to follow. Their model has been shown to, to be certainly very defective, and while it's worked for a while, it will not carry the Chinese forward. So it certainly, I don't think, will ever overtake the, the U.S. as a superpower in that sense. So throughout our conversation here, you've outlined uh, numerous risks uh, that are facing uh, the, the Chinese economy and, of course, uh, you know, facing investors. How should foreign investors uh, think about investing in China as they look forward? That's very difficult because if you look historically in China, you've seen all this phenomenal GDP growth, 8, 9, 10, 12%, and yet stocks seem to be continually uncorrelated or just do their own thing in comparison. And so therefore, it's very tough for investors. I think for when you're looking at Chinese stocks, I think the approach needs to take is that nothing is investable, but everything is tradable. Yes, there's going to be rallies and there's going to be very strong rallies, and there's going to be bear markets and things are going to go out of favor and some things will be in favor. The key thing is to be very realistic about what you can expect from the stocks, be very prepared to take profits, and then not, not get sucked into believing the headlines to justify your stock purchases. We saw this in 2007 when there was a phenomenal rally in Hong Kong and, and Chinese listed shares. Uh, and while it was clearly getting far too frothy and PEs of 30, 40, 50 times, uh, many analysts were still talking about strong economic fundamentals in China. And ultimately, at some point, the strong fundamentals just decouple from the stock market. And so therefore, you just be, be a tough investor. Do not become too sentimental about it and be prepared to take profits. 
Wonderful. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Frazier. We thank really you very much. appreciate you joining us. And thank you for joining us as well. And uh, don't forget that you can see all of our content online with the CFAinstitute.org. Thank you very much. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.